Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Live Radio, we feature a re-podcast of a program entitled Architecture of Sound from the American Sapor Exhibition at the San Francisco Public Library. This is somewhat of a change from our regular Music Live Radio. I would call this one Music Science Radio. We get into the actual architecture of sound in this panelist discussion. Lisa Vestal, chief curator from the San Francisco Public Library, does a great job of setting this one up. So let's just let her take it away. Sit back and enjoy Architecture of Sound on Music Life Radio. This podcast is brought to you by the San Francisco Public Library, your place where education and creativity come to life. This is Lisa Vestal, and I'm in the Office of uh, Exhibitions and Programming here. And today's program is a panel discussion entitled The Architecture of Sound, and it's presented with our community partner, um, the the American Institute of Architects here in San Francisco. And this program is related to our current exhibition, American Sabor, Latinos in U.S. Popular Music, that's on view now through November 13th in our Skylight Gallery on the sixth floor. This exhibition presents the musical contributions of Latinos um, in the U.S. from the 1940s that produced stars such as Tito Puente, Richie Valens, Celia Cruz, and of course our own Carlos Santana. And American Sabor was created by the American, um, the Experience Music Project rather, and organized for travel by the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service or SITES. And the exhibition, its national tour, it's touring about 15 cities through 2015. Um, and all the related programs, such as this one, are being made possible by the Ford Motor Company Fund. And for all of you music lovers out there, in addition to that exhibition, we, of course, across the way in the Jewett Gallery, have another music exhibition on view called Music for a City, Music for a World, documenting the centennial history of the San Francisco Symphony that's on view through January 9th, 2012. So we invite you to take a look at both. And our panel discussion today about the architecture of sound will begin with some introductions, a discussion with our panelists, and then some brief audience Q&A with you. So if you have some questions, please save them to the end, and I'll come out um, and meet you with uh, a mic so you can ask your questions. And in addition to today's program, we have a lot of other related programs coming up. Um, So if you're interested, please pick up one of our program brochures in the back of the room uh, or in the gallery, and of course, you can access them online at sfpl.org slash sabor. Um, so before I go ahead and do my introductions, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and silence your electronic devices for the duration of our program today. Our panelists represent areas of architecture, acoustics, and music, just to name a few. And I'm going to begin um, with some introductions of each of them, beginning with Mark Cavanero on the far your far right. Mark began his professional career in 1983 in New York at the office of Edward Larrabee Barnes, John M.Y. Lee Architects, where he directed a variety of projects, including civic, education, and institutional areas. And in 1988, he co-founded Barnes & Cabanero, later renamed Mark Cabanero Associates in San Francisco. 
And in 1993, it was official. He founded Mark Cavanera Associates and has since developed an intentionally diverse and wide-ranging body of work, including new construction, preservation, renovation of civic education, and arts-focused projects of various scales. Mark's notable project experience spans nearly three decades, including numerous award-winning projects in the Bay Area, such as the renovation and expansion of the historic California Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, the Oakland Museum of California Renovation and Expansion, and, of course, um, the upcoming SF Jazz Center. A fellow of the American Institute of Architects, he holds a Master's of Architecture degree from University of California, Berkeley, right here in our own neighborhood, a Bachelor of Arts degree, magna cum laude from Harvard University, and is licensed architect both here in California and in New York. And then next on our second, so your second to your left in is Kurt Graffy, who has been a San Francisco native since the close of the 1960s, studying engineering at the University of San Francisco. Lots of hometown players here, while also playing an insane amount of music. Armed with a degree in technical theater, he spent over 15 years in concert theater sound and lighting design production, both as a lead designer for the San Francisco Arts Commission Technical Resources group and as a freelance mixer and designer. His acoustical consulting career began about 25 years ago with Paoletti Lutis, Lewitz uh, Associates, and he joined his current firm, Arab Acoustics, in 1998, establishing their San Francisco acoustics pra- practice. At Arep, which is a global engineering firm based in the UK, he's an associate principal in acoustics, responsible for room acoustics uh, and audio systems design. He lives in San Francisco with his family and continues to play bass locally with various music ensembles. And then next to him, of course, Wayne Wallace, five-time Grammy nominee, is one of the most respected experts of African-American Latin music in the world today. He's known for his use of traditional forms and styles in combination with contemporary music and has earned recognition with his recent placement in downbeat critics' polls under both the trombone and producer categories. Wayne has performed, recorded, and studied with acknowledged masters of Afro-Latin and jazz idioms such as Aretha Franklin, Bobby Hutchardson, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Pete Escobedo, Santana, Cajunto Libre, Tito Puente, and many others. Wayne is widely respected as a teacher and historian and is currently an instructor at San Jose State University, Stanford University, and the Jazz School in Berkeley. As the head of his own record labor, record label, Patois Records, Rain has created a unique company with a very passionate mission of developing and chronicling the multilingual styles of the San Francisco Bay Area music scene. And of course, last but not least, on our far uh, left, John King is the San Francisco Chronicle's urban design critic and author of Cityscape, San Francisco and Its Buildings, published this last spring, May 2011, by Haiti Press. His work has also appeared in Dwell, Metropolis, and The American Scholar. He's an honorary member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, and in 20. 2006, he was the first recipient of the Gene Bird Award for Urban Journalism presented by the Urban Communication Foundation. And John's going to serve as our moderator to, for today's program. So without further ado, please help me welcome this wonderful panel. Hey, and I want to thank all of you for being here despite the weather outside. So we'll, we'll try to wrap up five minutes earlier. so. 
Um, I want to start, uh, I'm just going to read just a little bit by way of my own introduction and then ask each of the panelists a question and then we'll just chat for a bit and then go to questions. Uh, And I want to uh, read a book, um, a small excerpt from a book, Experiencing Architecture, I'm sorry, by Steen Eiler Rasmussen. It came out in 1959. And the last chapter was on hearing architecture. And I just want to read two very brief bits from this. One is a gender-specific reference, which might be the era the book was written, or it might just be the difference between men and women. Uh, So the, the excerpt is, can architecture be heard? Most people would probably say that as architecture does not produce sound, it cannot be heard. But neither does it radiate light, and yet it can be seen. We hear the sounds it reflects, and they, too, give us an impression of form and material. For instance, a man tends to whistle or sing when he enters the bathroom in the morning. Though the room is small in volume, its tiled floor and walls, porcelain basin, and water-filled tub all reflect sound and reinforce certain tones so that he is stimulated by the resonance of his voice and imagines himself a new Caruso. Uh, and and the reason I wanted to read that is that it it is a, this real interesting topic. Certainly, as a person who writes on architecture for the Chronicle, I tend to look at you know how a building looks, how it fits on the skyline, how it fits its surroundings. But obviously, the way in many ways the way we use a building becomes more important than that. And if you're in a nightclub, if you're a, a symphony hall so on and so forth, it includes the acoustics. So I want to start with Mark, who has done projects including the Jazz Center, which is going up right now just a few blocks away, Um, the ODC Theater, which is dance, but I'm sure it kicks in sound, and then a music school down on the peninsula. But I just want to start, we're in a room that, you know, high ceiling, rectangle with seats installed and all, if you're designing a space like this, um, does it matter if it is seen as a jazz performance space, as a lecture space, as a chamber ensemble space, as a speaker from out of town giving a talk behind a podium space, or is it all, or is it all a rectangle with high ceilings? Uh, you know, it matters very much, and. Um I'm not sure if there's a right way to do it or a wrong, but I would always start with trying to understand what's the overall feel of the space that you're trying to uh, develop. And that feel involves the acoustics and the visuals and more or less the sort of vibe of the room. And um, in different projects, we've had a very different uh, goal, and it's usually developed in conjunction with the client. SF Jazz, for instance, we spend a lot of time with musicians, and uh, the director, our client, Randall Klein, really wanted to have a space that musicians would like. And so that got into issues of the um, intimacy with the audience, the sight lines, how well you could look out and feel like you're part of the audience. The idea was to not be formal, to be, like a, to, to be unlike a formal theater where there's an actual relationship and a proscenium, and um, you would feel very kind of remote and disconnected from the performers on the stage. The idea in that situation was to be very much uh, a part of the room and to have it be changeable, depending on the music, whether it's a loud Latin band or a 
solo pianist, and um, also depending on what the audience was like, if it was a sit, sitting down or a stand and sway and removable areas for people to gather by foot. So we start by looking at the overall feel of the room, and then where the acoustics are, we work very closely with, with Kurt or someone like Kurt to help develop how you'd generate that feel. And typically we try to narrow down the range of what would be performed in that room because the types of spaces that are flexible and could accommodate anything, film or speech or drama or music or symphonic music, they tend to do none of them very well and do all of them at a kind of a lower level. And ideally, you're narrowing it down to a smaller range of what the intent uh, would be and then really design the space to work well for that smaller range of musical performances. Well, but the flip side, though, wouldn't... Wouldn't it, it seems like so many venues, certainly in the popular music scene, often are a different type of music than what something was designed for. Like, right. I don't know what the Warfield on Market Street, if that was a movie house originally, you know, but now it's like kind of a rock club. I mean, what's the dividing line between you know, designing the perfect space yeah. for a three-piece jazz group that mostly has acoustic bass and at the same time designing a space that if the jazz biz- the jazz school goes out of business and you know the conservatory of music buys it for expansion space right they can still work i mean what what's kind of the well there's flexibility and there's variable room acoustics that can um, alter or modulate the performance of the room and of course there's um, the, there, there's always a sort of ideal uh, i think type of music for any room that that room does really well in. And then the further afield you get from that, the room still functions, but maybe not as well. And uh, I think you can mitigate some of it, but for an architect, we tend to get fairly technical, as you can see maybe in this room, and Kurt can talk more about this room, but uh, understanding what all the materials need to be, what needs to be either dispersive versus what's absorptive, and all the materials that are not absorptive want to be somehow shaped or angled or... Uh, somehow turn so they're part of the overall performance of the room. And you have to deal with things like the underside of that soffit be- behind and around this room, these horizontal surfaces that can trap the sound and kick them out in terrible ways, or corners. Um, and, and depending on the spaces we've worked on that want to have a lot of amplification from behind to get out into the room, if it's more natural or acoustic music, and um, or if it's going to be more electronically... Uh, enhance or electronically controlled so the space might be a bit more dead acoustically less live and then you use various forms of elect- uh, electronic control to get the overall balance and a lot of that depends on what again the venues are the amount of volume you have available and the relationship you want to the be between the performer and the audience it tends to be part of the play of what the dynamic is of shaping that room and Kurt, that was uh, Mark talked about reflective, you know, reflective surfaces versus absorptive surfaces, so on and so forth. When an architect or when a building owner or a school or whoever brings in the acoustic technician, what is it you're doing? How are you kind of like fiddling with the controls? Well, as as, as Mark uh, indicated. Really, the most important thing is to determine what the usage of the room is and what type of uh, 
uh, event is going to take place. Is it uh, there's sort of this acoustic smorgasbord that goes from um, a live talker trying to be understood and intelligible in a room to a room that supports a symphony orchestra or or an organ. And, and the difference is, one of the big differences is how much does the room need to support the performance and how much does the room need to get out of the way of the performance. And so when we're doing rooms for classical music, we have unamplified instruments that have to somehow fill a room. And so we're very concerned about, basically, we're playing pool at 1130 feet per second. We're doing a whole geometric overlay on a space. We want to know where the energy's going. We want to know where it's building up, where there's a deficit. And we're looking, first of all, to geometrically shape the room to be able to support and distribute the sound. Then you have to look at are there areas where you've got potential for things reflecting back as echoes? So in a room like this, which is primarily intended for speech, one of the first things is to make sure that the room doesn't ring on too long, that the room doesn't sustain too long, that it gets the sound that's been emitted into the room dropped down so that I can speak at a fairly quick rate and you can still understand what I'm, what I'm saying. Conversely, if I went into a large uh, Gothic cathedral... I would have to speak very slowly and find the cadence of that room. If I spoke like this in a, in a Gothic cathedral, all you would hear would be a jumble of words because what I had just finished saying is still hanging around and it's obstructing what I'm saying now. So the, the use of the room is, is, is entirely, entirely critical. Um, Mark's quite correct in that multi-use spaces typically are... Uh, problematic. And it simply is that if you want to make a significant change in a room, you have to do one of two things. You either have to make a significant change to the physical volume of the room, or you have to make a significant change to the amount of absorbing material in the room. And since the largest element in most rooms is an audience, we would need to find an area of the room equivalent to the audience to either make absorptive or to make reflective to make a change. So how did... How could you tweak this room? Let's say that the library decides we're going to have music in this room five nights a week. Um, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, you're not tearing the walls apart, putting in new columns and things. What are the factors in a room like this that you could be playing with? So the, the factors in, in a room are the physical volume of the room, the shape of the room, the geometry of the room. But you the, can't change those. You, and the, you, have, you have this room. So. <laughs> well, that's right. I was going to number three. Number three is the surface materials, the room finishes. And so that's where you would look to be able to, um, in, if we're going to do electric music from the stage, amplified music from the stage. Get away this room is pretty dead. The room, you know, the sound isn't hanging around. And you can hear me quite easily. There's no real uh, amount of reverberation here. So the room, just in terms of that aspect, is, is, is pretty well controlled. We might find that there may be some surfaces that we want to soften up so we don't get so much energy back toward the stage. But I would think that this room could do music fairly well without, without a problem. Just at first pass. And Wayne, from, from the music perspective, from the perspective of a musician and a trombonist so that that's a tricky one there uh, 
how much does any of this really matter? Um, speaking as a non-musician, you know, it's kind of it's all about the groove and the spirit and how you feel on stage. So, so what does it matter if a room's dead or alive or anything like that? Makes a gigantic difference. Um, I can the best thing I can say is I hate playing outside because the sound just goes and you get nothing back, and you just play louder. It's like you're yelling and screaming. There's no intimacy. You spend all your time, at least as a jazz musician, developing a sound like nuance, and all of a sudden you're just yelling and screaming. Um, I can point to several buildings here in the area that are extremes. For It wasn't meant to be a music building, but the Great American Music Hall is my favorite place to play because you hear everything on stage. My least favorite place to play because it wasn't designed for music, even though there's music there all the time, is the Masonic Auditorium. It's an incredibly hard place. I've only heard one concert sound, well, two, I'll be fair. I heard Gilberto Gil there, and when Wynton Marsalis did Blood on the Fields, the sound was good. Other than that, I've had a difficult time just sitting in the audience, let alone playing on that stage. It affects your energy you don't feel like you have any synergy with the audience when you're not connected from a sound standpoint. At least I'll just speak for myself. That I don't have the synergy that I like to have where the audience can hear and feel what I'm trying to express through the instrument and through the arrangements and connecting with the audience. Now, why would the Great American Music Hall be so good? I mean, that's a building I can remember going to shows there in my college years i mean going back to the late 70s and things i have no idea how long before that so it's before there was like a high acoustic science developer what is it that makes that room just so fertile i don't know the technical end of it but i did some research on that building was built in 1907 and it was originally like uh, if not a brothel about as close as it could be to it it was owned by several different people it eventually became a place for jazz as a jazz venue and a supper club. In its recent incarnation now, there's more rock and roll. That there's, I'm going to take a very ignorant statement on this and say I like the rounded edges of that building. Okay. I like it that the sound seems to be softened. It's got that upper level. You hear everything. You're downstairs. You hear everything. Now, for the technical part of this, you should speak to these gentlemen but from the visceral, physical part of playing it, that's my favorite place to play, short of an intimate jazz setting where the audience is maybe 10 feet away from you. And how, how many of you have been to the Great American Music Hall? Oh, great. Terrific. So this is so, so one of the things that you notice is that there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of ornate. Mm-hmm. It's got the balcony railing. It's got a lot of stuff to break up in what we call diffuse and scatter the sound. And that's something that we like. We like we like a diffuse sound field. It helps to feel enveloping. It's got a lot of surfaces. Excuse me to the microphone, man. It's got a lot of surfaces to kick sound back to the musicians as well. It is an intimate space acoustically. You've got the underside of the balcony, which gives you reflections back. So it's 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 got all the right pieces in the right place, and it's a shoebox basically which is acoustically a a very good shape. Masonic is this fan-shaped room where all the surfaces are distant. And so the reflection sequence in there is... is Remember I said it's like playing pool at 1,130 feet per second. You know, if you play pool, you know that the angle that you you come off the bank, off the... the, 
table is the angle that you're going to you're going to the angle that you have incidence is going to be the angle you're going to have off, and the same thing happens with sound. And so, in a room like Masonic, all the sound basically ends up at the back of the room, and there's a whole section in the middle where the sound just doesn't get a lot of reflections unless it comes off the ceiling. So, there's a lot more disparity in terms of how the sound is distributed. Where in the Great American, also there's something that we've been one of the most interesting things about acoustics now is the fact that it's actually people that get impacted by it. You know, we can measure things, but the reality is that it's a, it's a human being who's going to be the auditioner as to whether the sound is good or not. And there are other factors besides just the acoustics, the color of the room, the look of the room, the shape of the room, that starts to say things to us, which is why the architecture is so important, not only as a physical element of sound, because sound is physical, so it does respond to your question, to physical shape and, and, and dimension, but also because visually it makes a difference. Hmm. The, uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you, Kurt, is how about the columns? I had always assumed the columns were part of that dispersal in that room, which fight the sight lines, but I think add a lot to... The fullness of the room. Yeah, the columns being a, a, a convex shape also scatter and diffuse the sound. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and again, there, it's hard to do that. Ideally, you wouldn't have them because they fight um, sight lines and they fight seating layouts and they fight optimum efficiency and flexibility of the room. But you, you look at some of the halls that are considered the, the, the tops in the world acoustically, like Music for Eins Hall and Concertgebouw and Boston Symphony mm. Hall. There's always a, a lot of detail, a lot of breakup. There's columns. Yes. There's uh, yes. statues. There's exactly. that's that's all good. It's all so part a lot of the is just the music being kind of like dissolved in the air and all blending together. Because I would think a room like this, you were saying it's okay, but it doesn't have all those little curves and twists. It's kind of got right angles and then dead spots around it. Whereas the Great American Music Hall would be like this big gentle blender that's just kind of putting everything together. Yeah. It, it's, that's a difficult thing to um, bring in architecturally these days is all those statues. And yeah. But um, <laughs> you had mentioned earlier the, uh, the music school in Mountain View, and I see Tom Schindler's in the audience, are the acoustician who helped me to design that space. And uh, at Tom's direction, we had a lot of uh, curved baffles that went out from the sidewalls to try and reinforce the acoustic, the natural music, to get out into the room, but to also disperse it into the audience in a way that it wasn't just this um, billiards table exactly. uh, direct reflection. And in order to augment that, too, like some of the symphony work we've done, like the, so let's say for the Marin Symphony or something, the issue, too, of how you can have baffles above the performers and try and get the sound out, but make sure they can hear each other without having to do that so much electronically. I think that's more important, too, with a larger band and the, the stronger sound. So that's part of it, too, I think, is, is how you actually emanate the music. And when does it go, in a way this is almost to Wayne, but I think it's to all of you, when does it go too far? I was at the uh, Dallas Opera House, which I didn't hear the opera in it, so I can't tell you how it worked. But I, I had an architectural tour for a piece I was doing for a magazine. And they were going on and on about the acoustic design of the interior. And, you know, it was just this incredibly detailed baffles and pivots and turn. And I just found myself wondering, okay, will the result be this incredibly beautiful sound or will it almost be the difference between an LP 
and a CD where it's like kind of so finely programmed that you kind of lose some of just the serendipity. I mean, can you can you overprogram a room? I guess would be the question. Mm. And both from a player of it doesn't sound right on stage, and then also as people doing the design. I think so. Um, I had a couple of things. Sorry. We're going to keep doing that. Uh, I have a couple of things I wanted to throw to you guys, too. First of all, I agree. I hate the fact of how over-amplified everything is now. It's really unnatural. And you also have, like, say you're working on your sound on stage. It goes through a microphone. Then the sound man gets it. He makes decisions. Then it comes back through speakers. So, I mean, what's that? This layering of four different things. Something gets lost in the process without going in that total direction. From what you guys were just talking about, I wanted to throw something out to you. The first time I went to Mexico, I went to Chichen Itza and went to the Pelota Court where, you know, you can stand at one end of it and if somebody talks, you can hear them. Right. I think about that and I think about the older jazz bands who had no monitors. Bass player wasn't amplified. Piano player wasn't amplified. Might not have been any microphones or anything. I see pictures of Ellington's band in the 30s. There's one microphone. I mean, what the hell happened? (laughs) What happened? Well, I know there's this whole visceral thing that people want music to be loud, but it's, it's, uh, I know, um, this is my curmudgeon part of this. Um, (laughs) It's okay. I know, thank I'm recovering. I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) Whatever happened to intimacy? That's all. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Whatever the hell happened to intimacy? That, that's actually been the goal. Getting circling back to where John started mm. with the SF Jazz Center from from day one, we spent a lot of time looking at that. We went back to New York as a group and looked at probably a dozen different clubs from very very small, uh, like a little club in um, Park Slope, Brooklyn, that's the size mm. of a living room owned by musicians, to to bigger performance hall and and the the direction from the client has always been to make a space that's intimate but can seat 700 people <laughs> and, uh, and do it flexibly. And so we started looking at some non-musical uh, antecedents. We looked at congregationalist um, churches in downtown Boston from the 1700s and how they would have um, a structure that was um, non-axial and uh, non-formal that would be spaces where people could see each other as well as the musician and the performer could be out in the middle and at the same time, the, uh, the music would be full from all sides. And you can watch a performer from the side, from the rear. And we could get the sight lines such so that you can get very low and, and not have a tall apron like we have here. So you're not towering above the audience, but you're down closer to eye level. And all that was, honestly, we spent years trying to develop a space that could have intimacy despite the size and the scale. And uh, that was very much something that the musicians that, that we spoke with, which were quite a few, all wanted. And they all said they would perform better, they would enjoy it more, they would have more energy, they would come from further afield to perform in that space, they would go out of way to come here if, if they had a space that had intimacy and, and just as Wayne is saying, had a space where they could perform more naturally or acoustically. And so that gets into some of the mumbo-jumbo I was talking about earlier with the baffles and you know the, the various elements we do of the upstage wall to make sure the upstage, and Kirk can talk much more about this, but how the upstage wall has to work is huge, and it's often not discussed. But, you know, th- this surface, um, 
and and maybe I might ask Kurt to talk about that a little bit. Well, it's it's a huge kettle of of of, of worms here we're talking about because this whole your your question about the intimacy and so part of it is the genre of music that's out now. Part of it is that people. Uh, are, don't really know how to mix. Part of it is people hear recordings that are extremely bass-heavy, for instance. And I was at a concert a couple of weeks ago, a wonderful, wonderful uh, singer-songwriter, and the predominant thing in the mix was the kick drum. The kick drum was louder than the vocal. The kick drum was loud. I'm a bass player. I like bass. It was killing the bass, and the bass was too loud also. Um, but, but, you know, really, I didn't come to hear the songwriter's accompaniment to kick drum. I came to hear the songwriter, and if he wants an accompanying uh, musicians, to hear them in the proper balance. But what's the first thing that's always checked during a sound check? Kick drum. Well, there's a reason. For, there's a reason for that because the 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 things in a room that are most problematic are the low frequencies, right. and so ideally you're checking the kick drum to get that tightened up, not to see if you can basically cause the, right. the diaphragm of the roof to pulse with each hit of the kick. <laughs> um, but conversely, doesn't everything have to measure up to the kick drum at that point, the dynamically? The, well, acoustically, when you're mixing, the drum set often sets the level on stage, and as you know from playing, that often happens as well. It's like with a drummer that just thinks that the only thing that matters is a stick and a skin, um, they will control the they will control the acoustic sound on stage, which means that they often control the acoustic level in the room, which means that everything comes up on stage so that the guitars, bass, horns can hear themselves above the drums. And so now you have the drum kit basically establishing. I don't mean to get bashing drummers. You know who hangs around with musicians a lot, drummers. But um, but um. um <laughs> And all my drummer friends will kill me, but they've heard it before. Um, What's the definition of a percussionist? A guy that hangs out with drummers. <laughs> There's a series of yeah. these jokes. How do you get a lead guitarist to turn down? Put a chart in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, I'm getting distracted here. Um, but but, but the, the point is that the other thing that happened is the demand for larger venues to be able to be more financially viable. So there's a whole financial aspect. You know, Davies Symphony Hall, you know, everybody knew for years that Davies was not a good hall. A lot of work was done, which essentially restored it to what the design was prior to the last-minute intrusion of the board of trustees who said we need another 800 people or something, we must have more people, and they simply stretched the hall and expanded it. So all the work that was done on stage at Davies to provide more support with the overhead reflectors, more diffusion and changing the angles of the sidewalls. They brought the parterre seating in so that the box, so now you had an earlier reflection path from the side seats rather than the wall because the room got too wide. All this stuff basically went back to restoring Davies to what it was originally. The same problems that happened with the great acoustic debacle in New York City, Lincoln Center. Um, again, the same thing happened. The room was, was made too big. But as rooms became bigger and they weren't being tasked to have acoustic acts, amplification came in. Right. And so then amplification became a necessary element. So for rooms that are going to support uh, you know, touring roadhouses, they'll typically be acoustically set up with the expectation that it's going to be amplified sound on stage. And if you brought a, an acoustic orchestra in, it would sound terrible, as, as Wayne was saying, because there's no support from the room. A room that's set up so you can play loud in it without having it turned to cacophony will be one that's like playing outdoors 
for an acoustic musician because there's nothing that comes back. So the, the genre of music and the style of music and the intention of the room is critical in terms of how you look to balance all these things. I mean, architecture and acoustics is like cooking. You know, you're cooking this stew, and the ingredients that you're putting in really depend on what it is you want to serve. And that's, uh, you know, there, there is no single, if there was, guess it would be pretty easy, uh, path where we could just say this is going to ensure everything for everybody. The closest that it's coming now is that we're doing what, what I call active architecture, where we are taking a room and electroacoustically changing the, the acoustics in it. So we can take a room that's very small and dry like this room, and we can have it sound like a Gothic cathedral. Um, and that is one that actually you can have full flexibility. You can go from something that will do cinema, which is probably the most demanding in terms of control of the room, to something that's orchestral. But then how much nuance is lost? Um, very oh, he's asking the musician. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, from the musicians that I've, well, we've spoken to, um, it's a, it's a, they like it with it on. It's the simplest way I can say it. And if they don't, they can turn it off. I think the nuance shows itself in the extremes of the dynamics. Can you really play loud without being abrasive, but when you play soft, is it caressing? Right. And if you can do those two things, most musicians are happy. Yeah. yeah the, these systems don't amplify what you're playing. They simply change how the room holds it. Mm. So if you're quiet, it's quiet. And if you're loud... It's, it's, it's as if the room was an acoustic room. Cool. I mean, it's something that's recently in the last decade been making, ma- making momentum. Let me ask, the exhibition, you know, talks about kind of the urban Latin American music scene. You know, a lot of the, we're, I mean, this is getting to the kind of the smoky bar in the theater type of thing. Um, you know, when when I was having fun hearing music in bars and things like that, I wasn't listening for the acoustic baffles of things like that. I was, you know, wondering how long the line at the bar was and things and so on and so forth. Uh, In terms of sound, now obviously the way a listener is listening to the sound is affected by why they're in a room, what their mood is, so on and so forth. But, I mean, one factor we haven't talked about You've got the room, you know, we've been talking about designing a room for like a performance. When there's music in the bar, in the nightclub, how do the glasses affect it? How do the number of bodies? I mean, to what extent does that become a factor that's affecting the plane? Maybe it's a a myth first, but most musicians, I'd say 90% of them, if you play a sound check and the room is boomy, first words out of their mouth, oh, as soon as there's some bodies in here, it'll be fine. Yeah, there's truth to that. Yeah, we always say that as soon as we get a crowd in, that it changes the sound. And this, I guess you guys could speak also to the ambient crowd noise, too, how that diffuses or works with the music also. I think there's actually a, a, another piece, which is um, music often works in found spaces. And you know, uh, you know, storefronts become jazz clubs, uh, warehouses become concert uh, facilities or, or rock rock clubs, and you know, some of it, this is sort of going completely 
you know, devil's advocate contradictory to what I do for my day job. But, you know, there are places that have iconic resonance as performing spaces that have nothing to do with acoustics. So Longshoreman's Hall here in San Francisco is an acoustic uh, porcelain fixture. Um, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. But yet it was home of some of the early concerts here, and it was because of the social interaction, the musicians, the audience, the vibe, if you will, that it, 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 it acquired this sort of resonance, and people came there for the experience and the sharing in the social sense, because music is a social activity. So you will find that places that, you know, we could come in and say, boy, the acoustics are terrible. People are having a great time. Well, yeah, I mean, Winterland going back into the 70s, I mean, what, that was designed as an ice skating rink? It was an ice skating rink. But it was a great place to hang out. <laughs> yeah. The, the Carousel Ballroom on Market Street was a, was a car dealership. And it, it, matter of fact, it is now. It's San Francisco Honda right. going back. I remember that. Wow. Or something like Slim's. Was that just a warehouse space? Yeah, South of Market. Yeah, before Boss Skaggs got involved with that. Yeah. The both and was just the perfect place to hear music, and not one iota of thought went into acoustics. Yeah. Which place? The both and on the Visadero, the famous jazz club. And, and so was that more just the ambiance of it? The ambiance, and it just worked. Yeah. And just one or two other questions, and I want to bring folks in, because you know, as we're just chatting... Um, What is the – and this is more for Mark. I mean, you know, you're talking about making all these visits and things, really talking about how do you design for intimacy but also design for 700 people, so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, a room – you know, the architect doesn't want the room to be so – you don't want to concede to everybody so much that nobody even notices the room, or do you, in fact? I mean, where, where does kind of the architectural, almost visibility statement kick in? I would guess with the Great American Music Hall, we were talking about the sound enhancements of statues and all these, or not statues, but just all the kind of gilded brothel-type architecture in 1907, but that also is part of the, it is the ambiance of the place, that you're like in kind of this cool... Gilded, gilded relic. I mean, where does the architecture come in? That's a great question. Just a neutral space. Uh, I, I think it varies a lot with the architect, and honestly, with the client. And the client may have a uh, strong idea of how much and what type of identity they want. The architect will have a strong idea of the entity and identity that they want. And um, I tend to begin more with the Kurt called the vibe. When we're doing the music school you talked about in Mountain View, it's. Um, a very good music school, but most of the performers are probably performing there for the first time in front of two or three hundred people. And this is a music school that's like it starts with middle school or elementary school. Uh, they start at elementary level. Yeah, so and and but they get some very. Um, it's not Juilliard. Yeah, and, and and the idea for the recital hall was this would probably for many of them be their first place to perform. So we started with the idea of trying to make it as non-threatening as possible, and to get the apron mm. low, and to get the sight lines to appear more bowl shape and to bring the audience in and have there be more again of this uh, informality, this sense of intimacy and the ease. So we didn't want as many technical um, accompaniments, a really light grid and um, to, we disguised all the variable room acoustics. So we didn't want all these baffles and shells that would make a teenager feel like they're performing in Carnegie Hall the first time they're on a stage. And a lot of the design work was to try and make the space feel gentle and easy for the performer 
because that seemed appropriate for the space. And so the ensuing architecture was, a lot of it, at least in my mind, was how do you do that? How do you make it acoustically perform well, and how do you make it seem really gentle for the performer? And the audience is probably full of parents and families, and, you know, it's that kind of a space, which is totally different from, say, some of the other things we're talking about or some of the spaces I've worked on that are much more formal and for professional musicians. So I, I, I think if you're the architect, you start with the bigger picture of what you're trying to do and worry less about the statuary and the tone of the wood material and, and, and circle your way in to um, finally find the right feel. Now, with, um, with the jazz center that you're working on, uh, to what extent is the architecture just a neutral backdrop, and to what extent is the ar- architecture kind of an affirmation of this? We've made it. We've built yeah. this exclusive building for jazz on the West Coast. That's a great question. I think it's a, it's a lot of the latter, and a lot of it wants to feel like a place for jazz, wants to feel more more like a club um, in a way than more like a club than a performance hall. And it wants to have the focus on the musicians. So the materials around them, they don't change like this room does from wood, from you know, reflective to absorptive. You know, to have, there's a continuity and a monolithic quality to it mm. um, that's going to really make the focus on the stage and the performance. And it's elegantly detailed, and the materials are all dispersive. But every element of it is sublimated. The lighting, all the mechanical things that you see, um, here, the various lights that are turned different directions, and all. at SF Jazz, all that is going to be extremely suppressed, extremely minimal, and what you're going to feel is a very simple room that has its entire focus on the performer, and that was very much part of the culture, what the musicians asked for, so that they could feel this intimacy and relationship, this direct contact with the audience. So all the architecture, as you talk about, John, was all about creating that vibe, and that gets into the choice of materials, the choice of lighting. It gets into the choice of seating and the upholstery, down to the flooring and how you fold certain materials up to make the um, sense of a plane versus a floor, to, to minimize disjunctures and to emphasize continuity and to emphasize uh, simplicity of focus back on the stage. And so once you get into that mindset of that being your gestalt, then the architectural decisions start becoming more and more clear and your range becomes narrower because you know what you're trying to do. It's not just sort of willy-nilly that I like stone or I like wood, I like brown, I like green, but it's really becoming more and more of one overall gestalt that hopefully will become their identity, that there will be a space so focused on the musician and the music that that will take on a character of its own and the architecture is just subordinate to that. Okay. Did you find a dichotomy in that within that it needed to be formal and informal? Yes, and, and we looked at, uh, the, have you ever been in Utrecht or Hertzberger space? Yeah, the, the idea that, um, uh, that you have different, different rakes, different steepnesses of, of seating that would break up and give informality at the same time for a lot of reasons, for both the clarity in the presentation and efficiency for seat count, you really need to have more of that formality or you end up losing seat count, which is vital for the business side of it, the pro forma. And the more you get that informality and you have more aisles and you have more elements that are changing which way, 
um, the harder it is to get your seat count up. So you're, as an architect, you're, you're really playing a game of trying to find ways to express that intimacy and that informality and try to find that efficiency uh, to make the room work. It's tough. And uh, my last two questions are just general ones out here, and then we'll shift over to you folks. Two very different halls. Um, first of all, have, have the three of you been to Disney Hall in Los Angeles? Frank Gehry's space. Okay, two out of three. Um, if, how, how many of you folks here have been to Disney Hall in Los Angeles, or at least seen it? I mean, it's real Frank Gehry, swirls and folds. And then the auditorium itself is swirls and folds, but very much a big shot. Acoustician came in and worked on it. Kind of curious for the two of you, is that something where you're aware you're in a Frank Gehry room? It's not, it, it doesn't quiet down once you walk in. I'm kind of curious how you two think that one works. Start with Kurt. Well, you're right. I mean, there's, there's definitely the stamp of that you know who did it, so you know who the space is. Um, a lot of time was spent uh, by the acoustician, Japanese acoustician, on that space and on the shaping. Um, there are seats there that work really well. There are seats there that don't work quite as well. I think in some ways the shaping uh, works against it. Um, but I think that's, that's often the case in halls. I mean, you know, you, you, not every seat is going to be perfect. Uh, your goal is to have as much uniformity as possible, but there will always be better locations than others. Um, it's taken a while for the symphony to get used to that hall. I, I've, had, I've heard a good show there. I have uh, fellow acousticians who've been there who have come away less than impressed. So it hasn't yet entered the roster of this is definitely a home run, but it's way, way better than where they were, and still the orchestra has to get used to the space they're in. So that's probably tr- attempting to be a diplomatic answer. No. no, I was just curious. And Mark, what what do you think? Uh, just from a more visual point of view, um, I think because the surfaces are very strong-willed and sculptural, as you said, but because they're monolithically that way, it's more um, consistent that way. I find, in a way, it's less distracting than I thought it would be. When when I went in there, I was I was not expecting to like the sense of focus, but I found that because the forms were so... And the organ being so prominent, yes. you know, it's kind of interesting as well. Yeah, it was almost like a cathedral, and, and it, 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 it reminded me almost... Anyway, regardless. But the, the, there's something so uh, continuous about the sculptural quality to it that, in a way, it works for That's me. Interesting. And, um, Which gets back to your sure. earlier question about over... Um, Emphasizing things, I think a room like that in, in the rooms that we are doing for for concert, literally there's no there's nothing that's arbitrary about almost any square foot of of that space. So that shaping, I know that they did a whole series of scale models. They did quite a lot of preliminary work. Um, those rooms are sort of Formula One of acoustics, and so you are you know the angle that you have, the curvature that you have, the location that you have. Are, are all entirely specific. And so the interesting thing there is it becomes what I call oral architecture, A-U-R-A-L, yeah. where you're looking to take the architecture and have the acoustics 
bring the architecture to a higher level in terms of what's necessary, and in the same way the architecture encourages and demands that the acoustics step up. And so when those two happen together, you have a place that's singularly singularly successful, I think, because both things work in concert with each other. I remember, John, when I was in college, I studied some churches by Boromini, kind of the late Baroque, early Rococo period, whatever. And in textbooks, and you look at the photographs and the drawings, you think, my God, it's so ornate, and it's every surface is curvilinear, and every element of it is active. And my God, going into that must feel like you're in a pinball machine and you're (laughs) bouncing around. But yet when you go into it, there's so much cohesion to it that it actually feels in a strange way very uh, calming, despite the fact that if you look at any piece of it, uh, it's the, the cumulative it's, richness. Yeah, it's, uh, on, on a detail level, it's rather frenetic, but when you're yeah. immersed in the space, there's uh, an organization to it. And that's sort of how I felt when I went into the... Uh, oh, mm-hmm. and, la- and last question real quick. Um, Palace of Fine Arts. I've always been struck at the weird contrast between the Palace of Fine Arts and then this hall that's, I don't know, a 50s, 60s perform. I mean, that kind of... That is, a, that is strange. I never thought of that, but you're right. How does that fit in? Anything to say about that space? I feel like I should be watching a Broadway musical every time I go in there. <laughs> um, it's what it's, the stages we think of. It's, it's really an outdoor space masquerading as an indoor space because it's a basically a big Quonset steel structure with curtain draped in there. Yeah. There, there are no supporting acoustic elements. Um, I used to do shows in there years ago, and we actually put loudspeakers at locations where we would have wanted a reflection and adjusted those so that they became an electronic wall, if you will, to try to bring some intimacy in there. But it, it is, it is, it's just all, um, you know, drape, drapes, drapes, and uh, thin walls, continent, big, huge continental seating. Wasn't the, the Palace of Fine Arts part of the, the San Francisco Exposition? Absolutely. Yeah, but not the not the theater. Piece. Not the theater, yeah. but the whole. But it was there was no thought to it in the fact that the exposition was there. And most of that was a facade going down Lombard Street, and that was the only remnant that for the 1916 exposition, whatever year that was. Yeah. So after the earthquake, San Francisco is trying to reclaim its greatness and show that we're back, and they loved it so much that's the one part they kept of the exposition. So I. I guess it would be worthwhile to see how much thought went into what was the future of well, what it was going to be. Well, and then once it once the decision was made to essentially rebuild it, you know, save it, but the saving was almost total rebuilding in the '60s. It was really for the gazebo and for the backdrop to the gazebo. So then it was like, oh, and what are we going to do with the space inside? And thank heavens the Exploratorium came along. Yeah. Uh, well, it's about. It's about five to one. So Lisa has a microphone. If anyone has questions for this terrific panel, Lisa will walk over your way. There's a man in the front. And then, you think the acoustics are in there good enough so I can just talk? That, that depends on how well you project. How do you, is that okay for you on taping? or no, everything, just, goes into the, everything goes into the Internet. We'll be days. on YouTube this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you would comment on the uh, acoustics in this place. Rate it uh, good to excellent, or also, where's the best seat in Davies? Mm. Uh, When you say this place, you mean this room? room. Well, you know, I mean, as I stood up and I listened, this room is is fairly dry. There's not a lot of reverberance. 
I'm hearing a slapback from the sound system up here. So there's obviously the loudspeaker is aimed at a, a reflective surface that's coming back uh, to me. I would think that this room, for the purpose that it was designed for, which was for basically lectures, works entirely fine. I think if we put uh, a bunch of Fender Twins up here turned up to 11 and uh, some Kungas and percussion and stuff, that this room would get over loud fairly quick. Um, but, you know. And, and what's your tip for Davies? What Usually the, the sit back, sit back further, you know, up on the first balcony, second balcony. You get the ceiling reflection, plus you get the sound in these rooms all, if you, if you work it out like you're playing pool, the sound all ends up at the back. And the, the biggest challenge acoustically is what happens in the center of the stalls, which is the main floor seating. That's usually the one that's out of reflection sequence. For the, uh, it's one of the reasons the reflectors went over stage, is part for the musicians and part for those front seats. Um, but quite often, the cheaper seats are better. They're not as good necessarily if you want you know, intimate. You want to be able to count how many strings are left on the bow of the first violin. But uh, no, that's, that's sort of the usual... Wayne, you don't look like a big fan of the Davies. Davies is fine when you're on stage. The times I've played there, I've enjoyed it. But the times that I've seen symphonies or anything else, like with SF Jazz, if I'm in the wrong spot, it's no fun. Mm. Hi. Could you talk a little bit more about the, um, the issue of, of uh, how much of acoustical design is science and how much is art? I think the Davies is an extreme case where it may or may not have worked on paper, but clearly it didn't work when the musicians got on stage. Um, as an architect, having worked on a couple of music buildings, our acoustician was very upfront in design that uh, they would get it as close as they could in de- on paper, let's say. But when the building was finished, that the client should expect that there would need to be some adjustments. Um, because it's just only so far you can get it. Is is variable acoustics sort of one way around that um, issue so that you can actually adjust the space uh, for the various types of music and performance? Um, I think there's a couple answers to that. Um, one, it certainly is more of a science than an art, um, and I think that's something that's happened you know, within the last hundred years, after Sabin first figured out how to predict reverberation times. Um, we now listen to buildings before it's built. You know, we have a, a, a ambisonic room where we can listen to a three-dimensional sound field of the, of the rooms before they're, before they're built. Um, so I think the risk is, is less. But it's like anything else. You know, you have a set of drawings that come from the architect and we're working and putting something on them. It goes to a construction site. Someone builds it. Maybe, you know, the drawing is, is veered slightly left when we made the model of it. And maybe the construction is veered slightly right when it gets built. So there, there will always be some discrepancies visually, acoustically, etc. But they're very small. Adjustable acoustics or flexible acoustics is usually in place to try to change the character of the room to allow it to support various types of performance styles. Tuning a room is something different where you know that you have certain elements 
particularly again for uh, uh, classical or acoustic music. So like for, for instance in Davies the series of reflectors over the stage can be adjusted in their, in their angle, in their, in their orientation because you literally are directing the reflections where you want to go. And part of that is hard to determine. I mean we can do it acoustic, we can do it electronically, we can look at it on computers, we can do a hand, hand ray trace of it, etc. But in the end it's like a lot of things. The, the ear is a better arbiter than the computer, and so you're going to sit there and work and tweak those elements. So usually there are some elements in a room that are tunable or adjustable, um, and those are the ones that you work with and sort of defining. It's like when you buy a suit. You know, you get something off the rack that basically is roughly a- akin to your size, and then you do some fine tailoring so that it actually fits you. And so for, for uh, rooms that have a high profile acoustically, there's going to be some of that. I'll, I'll be a guilty person here and ask a quick question, May, I guess for all of you, but maybe Wayne and Mark. I'm just sort of curious with the you know, plethora of mobile devices out there, and you're performing on stage or you're designing, and you've got a bunch of <laughs> mobile devices up in the air recording your performance. It, is that now a factor we all have to think about in design and in the performance <laughs> aspect? looking out onto a sea of flashing lights or lights that are out there like night lights in the audience? You want to go first? I, I was thinking it's you know, much more sustainable than sitting there lighting matches. <laughs> Freebird. <laughs> um, my thought is if I'm in a situation where I'm improvising and I notice that, I'm not doing my job. If I'm paying attention to people out there with mobile devices, that means I'm not focused. Hmm. So in other words, they don't bother me. Let me ask a real quick question. I didn't think of this. Um, Musically, this is mainly for Wayne, but Kurt, you also played music. How long does it take you to kind of adjust to a space? You know, I just thought of it when you were talking about improvising. I mean, pretty much after one or two songs, do you are you not really thinking about the room anymore and you're kind of settled into whatever it is you're doing? Or are you kind of learning a space as it goes on? A little bit of both for me. I played last night at Yoshi's, and because of a prior commitment, I couldn't be there for the sound check. And I had that uh, spitting in the ocean effect on the first tune as the uh, sound man is adjusting my monitor level. And by the third song, I was okay. Then I could stop thinking about the sound and just play. But the sound does definitely affect your thought process in playing. Like, are you cutting through the band as a brass player? Am I cutting through the rhythm section? Am I being heard easily, or how loud do I have to play? It definitely affects my thought process. It also depends upon how um, how well the band is communicating on stage. In, in, when you can't hear the other members on stage, where you're not sure whether you're too loud, too soft, uh, or you're really straining to try to hear uh, the balance and, and, and communicate with other players, the room then becomes a huge thing because you're also you're. You kind of have to get comfortable, first of all, with the ensemble on stage. 
And when that's comfortable, then sort of the room, how do you adjust for the sound of the room? It's, it's sort of interesting. There's a lot of acousticians who are bass players, and I think it's because the bass really is impacted by the acoustics of a room, particularly small rooms. And so I, I think that, you know, you sort of become aware that... Um, that's a whole other side story, but you become aware of, of, the, of the acoustics much more so. And, and so part of it is understanding how the room is going to do it, but the first thing is you've got to get comfortable on stage. I mean, if you can get that to happen, then the room sort of goes away. I don't really care as long as I'm comfortable up here. You make a good point. As you reminded me last night the same thing. The first tune we played, the time was here, but I was too close to John Santos, and he was playing a bataille part that was... And this is one, but this started to sound like one. Mm. So I was going, instead of going one, two, three, I was going one, two. And I got displaced where I couldn't hear time in relationship to the rest of the band. Yeah. And yeah. It, it took till about the third song for that to go, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Are there other, other questions? Up here's one. My question's kind of related to talking about the vibe of the space. I was wondering if over the years or just your experience with concert halls, you've noticed the neighborhoods around them sort of change and the kind of a culture that comes with the spaces that are created for music. It's kind of open for anyone. (laughs) No, in other words, I mean, this gets beyond pure acoustics, but I mean, I mentioned Slim's earlier, you know, the block of 11th Street Slims is on, and the larger neighborhood around it is much different now than it was in, you know, 1987 or whenever Slims opened. D- does that? <laughs> There's an interesting thing. It's something that we, we're, we're talking a lot about, how um, the architecture and the style of architecture impacts the accessibility. So you look at the sort of the classical European concert halls, you look at Davies, you, you look at the Opera House, they're very formal, they're very rigid. We're in a society now that tends to be very much about interactivity, about uh, transparency and being able to, you know, I know where someone is, I can see where they are on my phone, etc., etc. Um, and then you have other spaces that are much more immediately accessible, so places like Slims or places where you, like the SF Jazz, where you're going to be able to look in and see something. So they become part of opening out to inclusive of the community so that they're a community player rather than... I, I, we have to apologize and get this guy a beer, I think, afterwards. Um, <laughs> rather than something that's very formal and shielding what goes on from, from your eye on the street. I mean, you would have no idea what's happening in the opera house from, I don't mean to pick on the opera, they're one of our clients, but, um, <laughs> but from, from the street. And this is, this is something that, you know, is a sort of an ongoing discussion in terms of the expression of uh, performance spaces and, and the communities that they're in. That's a great point, because when Pearls was open, that window was always open on the side, and anybody walking down, up and down Broadway, I'm sorry, Columbus, yeah. Would, could stop and watch the band play. And we kind of fed off of that energy in some ways. It was because, oh, we don't know who you are, but here. Let me lay this on you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it does that. There is some energy in that. It's like and, walking oh. down North Beach and smelling the food smells. Yeah, it is like that, yeah. And the related question is most of the uh, nonprofit music organizations that I've worked with, small, medium, and large, these days especially, they're focused on uh, audience development, which means the issue of making sure that people in their teens and 20s 
will appreciate, attend, and support that institution and its music as much as the people who are today in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. do. And that has very much to do with the, the accessibility, not physical accessibility, but kind of emotional and uh, intellectual accessibility of that music or art form. And um, the overall, which you called earlier, the vibe, um, the feel of that neighborhood, that space, that evening, and how you go and how comfortably you go and how comfortably you experience it and how easily you can try it the first, second, or third time and discover that you like it and want to learn more and, and, and go back. And that's a huge part of, um, I think, the audience development issue, which is enormous these days. And it's really threatened by the way music is now um, kind of dispersed through electronic media at all different levels. And so the idea of generating more appreciation for live music gets right into this issue of, of uh, how attractive do you make it and how easy do you make it for people to experience. And, you know, in the 50s you could have a village vanguard and it's a little basement, you know, just off Bleecker Square and, and it's okay. You don't expect to see it. or But then you do something like, um, I don't know, the jazz at Lincoln Center and you have to go into like a commercial shopping mall and up a elevator and it's so inaccessible that... Um, it starts to present real problems for that organization and ultimately, I guess, for the appreciation of that music. So I think it's a big deal, personally, and I think in the last 10 or 15 years, the way music is being consumed, let's just say that, it's more and more important for the future of live music and appreciation. Now, that's a, it's, a, it's tangent, but the history of Broadway goes back to the 1850s as far as the street for entertainment, Shanghaiing, and etc. And I had forgotten, but you bring up an excellent point. When Loma Prieta happened, Broadway almost became inaccessible when they tore down that freeway ramp. Remember, you used to be able to come off and land right at the foot of Broadway? Uh, right. the, the Crosstown yeah. link. Yeah. And I think it would be interesting for someone to look, what was the demise of the jazz clubs down there? Did that happen when people could, like the merchants in Chinatown are complaining there's no accessibility to getting there? It's horrible to try to drive on the freeway to get down. Then you have to go through Third Street, come across Market, and not counting for the parking. But if you go back to the El Matador, the Jazz Workshop, any of those clubs, that might have been the demise of a lot of those places. Yeah, John, the uh, interesting thing, too, architecturally, is that I'm aware of having designed some theater spaces for live drama and others for cinema, too is that I think it was in the 20s and in Los Angeles more than any place that really started exploring this idea of of how do you affect the neighborhood and how do you affect the um, interaction. And they had a saying back then that the uh, show starts on the sidewalk for cinemas in L.A. And it was all about bringing that vestibule right out to the street and hanging the marquee over the sidewalk and having lots of little dot lights that would su- supposedly s- simulate... Um, Starlight and evening light. And it was all about trying to draw that block of the city into the theater. And again, this issue of access to not have a real hard line like you might at the Opera House in a more bizarre prototype Mm. between outside and inside, between access and um, comfort. And in the 20s, that was really developed. Um, And in the 30s, and of course, the war and the Depression changed all that. But when they came back in the 50s, they were were different. But uh, my experience of it and my sense of reading and the history of it is it really started in that era, no, this understanding of theaters. I haven't and been out 
I haven't heard music at the Fox Theater in Oakland. I don't get out enough. Uh, but it is interesting because that's a classic theater of that era that's now been redone into a combination supper club, performance hall, so on and so forth. There was a question in the last row. I think this is our last question. Um, you've spoken about designing halls for a different type of, I mean, different types of venue. And Mr. Wallace mentioned uh, when he went to Yoshi's, the sound engineer helped him adjust to the room. Now, I mean, I'm not too familiar with music, but can sound engineers help uh, halls that are not designed for a certain type of venue? Can they help equalize the room for the performer? Or are they the ones who kind of saved the day and helped the performer uh, do well in a hall that is not designed for their type of music? For anyone. <laughs> I find personally that my, my experience performing depends upon how musical the sound person is. If they understand what the band should sound like in totality, not individually, and what the instruments should sound like. Every time, I remember uh, an old friend of mine, Fred Cotero, mm-hmm. when he was an engineer, he would come into the recording studio and put his ear right next to the saxophone so we could hear what the sound, what the instrumentalist was hearing. And then he tried to replicate that when he recorded. And back on, back on my soapbox and a curmudgeon again, everything's too freaking loud. I mean, that's, it gets lost. and they, Somehow volume is equated as good, as opposed to actual, what the actual tonality or the tone of the instrument should be. And that could be electronic instruments, too. I can imagine that if you're not an artistic mixer. It would be, wait a second, the drum's not coming through. So you'd, It's like an arms race, so you'd crank that up. And then it's like, well, wait, we're kind of losing the bass. We'll crank that up. That's and then wait, the guitar. I, I, I call that mixing to black. Um, you know, people do that also with their equalization. I can't hear this, so I'm going to give it more high end. Oh, I can't hear that. I give it more low end. But really, and I'll get on my soapbox, it's, it's about <laughs> subtractive mixing. You take away what's not required so that you can hear the space around the instruments. When you push everything too much level, too much equalization, it, it all fights. And what you want to do is say, okay, I have the tonality of, of, of your instrument. Right. I don't need to put in 50 hertz in your, in your trombone. That's just going to be picking up what's coming off the kick drum and the bass. So you start to look at cleaning things up. But it definitely helps, I think. I've, I've always thought that mixing that, first of all, the band has to be cohesive on stage. If the band is a train wreck on stage, it's really difficult to do anything cohesive with them in the mix. But if the band is, is cohesive on stage, I always thought, I'm, another, I'm the sixth member or the seventh member or the 15th member, whatever the ensemble size is, of that band. And you're absolutely listening. You know where the solos are going to come. You can see them coming. You can see, I mean, you, you do more than just sit there and move the knob up and down. You know, you're looking to see okay, I just saw the tenor player pass a look over to the keyboard, so I think he's going to take the next solo. And you just sort of, you, you pay attention, I think is probably the easiest, most succinct way to say it. Um, a, sound, a good sound person can make a hall that isn't necessarily ideal for the type of performance work better. Um, there's a lot of variables involved. Again, you know, is the band completely insensitive to the room? If the band just comes in and jacks everything up, then a lot of times, like at Longshoreman's Hall, I could basically set the console anywhere I wanted and it wouldn't make any difference. Once you had a band that had four stacks of marshals on stage, you know, it didn't matter. I could go get a cup of coffee. Um, 
remember sometime one show someone came over and said could you turn that down please i said what would you like turned down they're all down you know <laughs> uh, so anyways i digress Okay. Well, thank you all. This was fantastic. Please help me thank our panelists. Thanks for coming. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to Lisa Vessel and the San Francisco Public Library for allowing us to repodcast this Architecture of Sound panelist discussion. Thanks for tuning in to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time. Music by Kevin McLeod.